Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Normandale Sermon Podcast. My name is Everett, one of the kid members here at Normandale. We hope that this sermon helps you take the next step in your walk towards Jesus, and if you feel inspired by what you hear, you can support the ongoing ministry of Normandale by going to normandale.org slash give. Thanks for listening to our sermon podcast. All right, so kindergarten through third grade, if y'all want to go to kids' church, you can do that in the back door. Back there, Bobby, or someone should open the door in just a second. Or you're just running into a adultless abyss somewhere over there. There we go. There we go. All right. Now, if you are uh, a parent and you want to walk your child back there, if you don't feel real safe about what I just said... <laughs> Walk children in there, and, uh, and they're going to have a great time. They'll be released back in here following the sermon time. And uh, so, yeah, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, which we're looking through uh, chapters 12 through 14 together. And so we're going to be in verses 13 through 17 this morning. And... It's been cool, okay? I've enjoyed looking at this book. It's different, I'll tell you that. It's different than what we typically will look at uh, because you're dealing with a lot of signs. You're dealing with symbolism uh, regarding spiritual, the spiritual picture of what's happening uh, and things that you typically can't see. And so what we're looking at right now, especially all of chapter 12 is about this. It's about the power at work behind all anti-God rule or power in the world. And, uh, and so it's, it's really been, the whole chapter is about Satan, and uh, a topic that we don't really deal with a whole lot, uh, just day in and day out, uh, but the whole chapter is geared towards who is he, what does he do, what's his story, how does he affect us, and uh, so we're coming to the last part of uh, his story. And so um, or at least the, the last part of his story related to what happened at the cross and what does he do following the cross. And so let's look at the text together, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 12. And uh, we'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll get digging into it. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. And so the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. And so, Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for this time, this opportunity we have to be here and to hear from your word. And so I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to understand it and gain insight from it and be able to live in light of your truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so in this text, I'm going to break it down into three sections uh, because I think it breaks down pretty, pretty evenly in that way. And so here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the pursuit of the devil, the, the preservation of God, and the passion of the church. The pursuit of the devil, the preservation of God, and the passion of the church. So at first, we got the pursuit of the devil. So 
I, uh, you guys know, I love, I love road bikes. And so I uh, got some new tires for my, my road bike recently. And uh, it's an exciting thing because they're pretty expensive. It's like buying tires for a car. And so, um, and so I got these new tires. I've been wanting them for a while because I've been, part of it is I want the tan wall because I think the tan wall on, on my bike would look really, really cool. It does. It looks very awesome. And I don't have a picture. I should have put one up here. But it looks awesome on my bike, okay? Anyways, so I got these cool tan wall Pirelli tires uh, for my road bike. Now, uh, these are tubeless. I run them tubeless without, so it means basically you don't have an inner tube inside of it, just like your car. And so as I was installing uh, the front one on my tire, you have to use a compressor to pop the seal, uh, to pop the, the, the tire onto the rim to get it to where it's sealing properly. And so I put my compressor on it. And popped this first one on it, and I had this, all of this, uh, uh, basically this stuff inside of it to, to, if you get a puncture in it, it seals it up. And, uh, and so I had all that inside of it, and I popped, this, popped it onto where this, the tire was on. But with my compressor, I put too much air in the tire, not realizing it. And so I'm holding it in my hand in the middle of my garage. And as I'm walking around, I think it's on good. I forget to release some of the air out of the tire, and the entire thing explodes off of the rim in my hand. The sealant goes everywhere in the garage. My hand has like a really big, like a kind of a bruise going, going across my palm. It was, it was like someone shot a 12 gauge in my garage. And it was late at night. It was like 9.30, late at night, late at night for a dad. It was like 9.30. And like, I've got the garage open and I got a gunshot that goes off in my garage, and I scream. My neighbor's across the street looking in the garage, and uh, I, you know, I feel stupid, okay? The thing has scared me, though. Now, I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, what do I do? Can I use this tire? Can I not, can I, can I, like, is it safe to still use the tire, even though the bead popped off the rim? Like, I don't, and so I started having to think, okay, what else can I do? I'm not going to run this tubeless because I don't want that happening when I'm going down a hill. And, uh, and so now I guess I'm going to go with an inner tube. Like go to, let's go to plan B. We're just going to throw an inner tube in that thing and move on. And then from my back tire, I just said, you know what? I know John Bjornan at REI. That dude can fix my tire. I'm just going to have him fix my back one for me and put that one tubeless. Now, why do I tell you that? Sometimes you have a plan in your head of what you want to accomplish. It doesn't pan out. And so you got to go to plan B. Now, I'll tell you that because that's exactly what we see with the great dragon here in the text in verse 13. You see, his great plan, his entire job was to argue for the, for the separation of unholy people from a holy God. That's what Satan does. That's what he was created to do. He was your prosecuting attorney to argue that you should be removed from a holy God. But here's what happened. Jesus came and died and rose again. And so that grants you and me forgiveness for our sins if we believe in him. Therefore, the accuser has nothing left to do with you or me because Jesus granted us forgiveness. He can't accuse you of anything anymore because if he ever tried, Jesus would say, nope, he's got forgiveness. I took that sin on myself and I paid the price for it. There's nothing left for that person with you. And so with the, with the dragon, he hears that. Satan hears that, and he's like, okay. And what does the text say? He was cast out of heaven. 
He was thrown out of heaven because there wasn't a place for him anymore. His job became obsolete, and so he was thrown down to the earth. That's where we ended it last week. He was thrown down to the earth with great fury because he knows his time is short. And so plan A, arguing that unholy people should be removed from a holy God, is done. So what does he need to do? Go to plan B. Look at verse 13 with me. When the dragon saw he had been thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. And if you recall, who is the woman? She's the church. She's the people of God. And so the dragon moves on to plan B, saying, okay, well, I'm not just going to accuse her and argue for her separation. Now I'm just going to utterly destroy her. That's what I'm going to do. Plan B, destroy the church. And so the dragon comes down to persecute the woman who had given birth to the male child. See, this is the pursuit of the devil. He's the pursuer. And what is he doing? He's pursuing the church. You see, how does he do it? And there are a couple of ways in Scripture that we see that the dragon pursues or persecutes the, the church, the woman. One of them is through deceit. We saw that at the, actually at the beginning. I was already in his repertoire. In Genesis chapter 3, what does he do? He goes to Eve, and he's like, did God really say that? You remember that? And she's like, well, no, God, you, you know, I don't know. I guess God might not, I guess the apple does look nice, you know? And so what does he do? How does he persecute the woman? He comes as a deceiver. He comes as a persecutor. Think of oppressive governments. Think of oppressive offices. <laughs> And he comes to push, to put pressure on her, to entice her, to leave her God. What does he do? He also comes with to bring moral decay. Moral decay. You see, how many times in your life have you felt distant from God? And if you really think about, like, moments in your life where you just felt like you were just, God is over here and you are way over here. And if you really think about it, are there any, is there a correlation between that feeling of distance from God and increasing sin in your life? You see, whenever you feel guilty, what do you want to do? Remove yourself from God. Moral decay brings separation. That's in the devil's that that's his that's one of his tool belts. And the third one is he hasn't quit being an accuser. He just doesn't accuse you before God anymore. He accuse you, accuses you before you. So we talked about a couple weeks ago or last week. And you're, like, you're laying in bed at night. How, like, and you remember all of a sudden this horrible thing you did 15 years ago or 12 years ago. And you're like, oh, no, I did that. Why does that come to your mind? Because there's someone trying to destroy you because he's trying to destroy the church. He wants to remove you from God. He hasn't quit. He's just changed his tactics. He's just changed his person he's going to. And so, does that sound scary? (laughs) The next thing I want you to see in this text is the preservation of God. Look at verse 14 with me. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And from his mouth, the serpent spewed the water, uh, spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river to, uh, that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So 
even though the dragon has come down and he is set on pursuing or persecuting the church, what does God do? The second thing he does, or the, this number two here, is the preservation of God. He works to preserve the church. He works to preserve his people. And so this text is kind of interesting in how these verses 14 through 16 are presented. How John wrote them is as though it is, or it's, it's an allusion to the exodus from Egypt. So I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. Back in the book of Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And you had, you know, the, you know, the Moses, uh, you know, Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and so Pharaoh's got the people enslaved, and he's not letting them go. And then God says, okay, I'm going to raise up a leader, Moses, and he's going to come and, come and save them. And then he goes to Pharaoh, and he's like, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, never, you know, and there's the ten plagues that come. And then eventually on the tenth one, when the Pharaoh's son dies, then God, he says, okay, let him go. But then after the people leave Egypt, what happens? Pharaoh changes his mind, and he starts to pursue them again with his great army and so that until they come to this pinnacle point where you have the people of God with their backs against the wall, the back against the Red Sea, and you have the army advancing on them. And what happens? God provides a way of escape, and he opens up the Red Sea, and the people walk through it. And then the army pursues them into the ocean, and what happens? The sea swallows them up right? Well, now here in this text, you see the pursuit of the devil coming after the church, and you see God working to preserve His church in the midst of or because of the attacks of the devil. And so look what the text says. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Why does He say it like that? Because in Exodus chapter 19 verses 4, or verse 4, it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, there's a connection there. He's saying he's preserving the church like on eagles' wings, just as he did to his people coming out of Exodus. The second thing, where are they going? Uh, eagles, uh, wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness. Well, why is she, where is she escaping? She's escaping from the presence of the serpent, the great sea dragon. Well, in, that's what happens here. You have Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 2 through 4, which calls Pharaoh the great sea dragon. Look what it says. Or here, here what it says. Son of man, face Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all of Egypt. Speak to him and say, this is what the Lord God says Look, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon, the great sea monster, lying in the middle of his Nile, who says, the Nile is my own. I made it for myself. And God says, I'll put hooks in your jaws and make, you the, make the fish of your streams clean to your scales. I will haul you up from the middle of your Nile, and all the fish of your streams will cling to your scales. You see, you have this prophetic view of the Pharaoh who was attacking God's people and was bent on destroying God's people, called the great sea dragon. And that's the one that the presence, the, the woman, was being delivered from, right? Delivered into the wilderness, away from the great sea dragon, just like the people of God in the Exodus. But look, the preservation continues. Look at verse 15. From his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman, like a great army coming after her to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman 
the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon spewed from his mouth. Just like the Red Sea swallowed up Pharaoh's army, so too does God preserve his church by swallowing the great flood, the great overwhelming flood from the dragon against the church. Now, why? Why is there this illusion? Like, why is John presenting it this way? Because what he's trying to tell all of these Christians, who many were familiar with this Jewish history, because this is the greatest saving event in their history, we're saying, just as God preserved all of our people back then, so too will He do it today. That's what He's saying. Just as He preserved them back then from the great dragon Pharaoh, so too will He do it now from the great power behind that Pharaoh, the great dragon himself, Satan. That's what He's getting at here. Now, as a side note, to fully get the grasp of the extent of what John is telling us here in these verses, you and I need to be removed in a sense. We need to escape, in a sense, our American or especially our Texan Christianity. Uh, and, and like the, the mindset that we have as Texans, the, the experience that we have as Christians in Texas, uh, to, to be able to see a fuller picture. Because we live in a country built on religious freedom, and that is a good, beautiful, godly thing. That is a great thing for us to live in this country, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging that in any sense. But when we consider the desperate picture presented in the text here, but then we see it in light of our own experience of living as Christians in Texas, sometimes the desperation of the text, it gets lost on us a little bit because of how easy it is for us to exist as Christians here. Like, for example, today, we are all here in this room, and I would expect none of us are worried about being found out by the government that we're here. In fact, on your census, whenever you get another census thing and they ask for your religion, Christian, mark that sucker. Like, no issue. Because you're not worried about if the government knows you're a Christian or not. It's just part of life. Like, it's okay to be that here. And likewise, the threshold to joining a church here, in the, in, especially in Texas, is really low. The bar is low. In terms of, like, if you want to come join, just come tell us your testimony. Come to our class, learn about our church. Make sure you're getting on the right, you know, we're on the same page here. Meet with an elder and you're in. There is no sneaking around. There's no needing to really be like, man, okay, the church is meeting in this house this week. The church is meeting at this house next week. And you got to figure out exactly where they're meeting. Uh, so that way, and you got to prove that you're not an informant for the government to be able to get into the room there. Like, the bar, the barrier to entry is crazy low here. Also, the exit doors are crazy open here, right? Like, because it's just, that's just the, how life works here in Texas. It's all open. And so, that may be, there may be something in that. There's a, the part of the tactics of, of the devil here, at least for us here in Texas, is just leading us to kind of feel apathy of, towards it, in a sense, Right? Because the barrier to entry is so low, the exit door is so wide open, and the economy leads us to be able to, li- be able to live pretty okay lives, frankly. 
then sometimes we can begin to think like, you know, I, church is a good thing. I want my kids in church. They need to learn, you know, learn about good stuff. Like, I, I think that'll be a good thing for us as a family. And, uh, but we can live okay lives if we just aren't that committed to it. And we'll go to Christmas or we'll, we'll go occasionally. We'll go once a month maybe. And, uh, uh, but we have good lives outside of this. And if we kind of get away from it for a little while, it's, it's fine. Life is fine. We'll, cl- we'll claim Jesus, but that's fine. Like, like that's kind of the Texan experience, right? It's kind of the Texan experience of Christianity, and the bar's real low. But, and I don't want to, I don't want to decrease, I don't want to be, I don't want to ridicule it, because there may be increasing ridicule coming, you know, especially as there's a clash between Christian belief and, and broader culture's religion of LGBTism, you know, and, uh, or gender identity and all that kind of stuff. Like, there's a clash between this. So there's increasing ridicule coming, I, I'm sure. But if we, if we move outside of the Texan Christianity and look at global Christianity, if you look at the experience of your brothers and sisters in Christ who live in places in the global south, live in places in Far East Asia, like that is a different experience altogether. If you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ who live in North Korea or in Afghanistan or Iran or India or Burma, like, you can, you can just list all these places in Somalia. Like, like, just think about their experience this morning trying to meet. Like, it is, it is vastly different. It's a vastly different experience. And when you and I begin to think from global Christianity perspective, then the desperate nature of what John is writing about here, about the persecution by the, by the devil, it takes on a different meaning for us. It takes a different per- perspective, Right? And when you begin to see it from that way of like the, the horrific nature of trying to follow Christ in an oppressive totalitarian government system, you can begin to think like, well, if there is persecution, if there is martyrdom across the globe, then how or in what sense is God actually preserving his church? Like if people are dying for their faith, are sent to concentration camps for their faith, if you have to, you have to meet in secret and sneak around and sneak Bibles into the country, then in what sense is that preserving his church? Like how does that, how does that actually work? Have you ever just stopped and wondered about why the church still exists, or how the church still exists as a whole, as an institution. Like, if if you really think about it, like, why are we still around? Like, we've we've got a host of both internal and external issues. Just think about all of Christian history from 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 Jesus's resurrection until today. How many things? from internal issues that you, like, you can think of, very like, you know, that was a bad idea, or that was a horrible leader, that was an ungodly moment. Like, think about how many, how many sinful leaders have there been in the church? It's like led by the flesh. How many, how many have existed? Think of, if you remember, if you've ever read about or, or heard on a podcast or something about Christian history, like, how many evil popes have there been? <laughs> Or, or like think about the, the Spanish Inquisition or the Crusades. And, and you've got all of these, this, this history of people just reacting after Constantine made Christianity the, 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 the national religion of the Roman Empire. Then all of a sudden, Christians began to see, whoa, we got power now. We're the ones in power. And they began to do horrible things. And you've got to wonder, like, 
Why do people still want to be Christians with that stuff having happened, with people acting in that such a human, sinful way? Or why do godly, revered leaders dip into denominational wars that, that gain this, this horrible reputation and gain this, like, had this horrible experience for these other people, their opponents, and people still look at that and think, you know what, I still want the Jesus thing. For example, John Calvin. John Calvin godly leader, revered leader. He was a pastor, text-driven. He, he did so much for the church, but he also really hated Anabaptists. So much so that he argued for one to be killed because of his beliefs. You got to think, that was a pastor in France, in Switzerland, like, and he's revered. I read his commentaries. I think he's great. But like, how does that happen? Like, why do you still want his religion when people can act in such a horrible way? Like, why is the church still around? Or think about it. Let's make it closer to today. Closer to today. Two years ago or a year ago, it came out this big thing about how the Southern Baptist Convention completely as a whole mishandled sexual abuse victims. And that comes out, but the church is still here. The church is trying, Southern Baptist is trying to make it right. But this horrible experience for some members of the body has not destroyed the entire church as a whole. And you've got to wonder, like, with all of these internal issues, with sinful people trying to make this thing work, why is the church still here? Why do people still want the Jesus thing if, this is, if that's kind of the history? And so these are internal issues. But also, you have external issues with the church, right? See, not only just sinful people on the inside— but you also have external issues, external problems, such as increasing intolerant views on the broader culture against what the church believes. Like I said, one is against gender or sexual identity beliefs, right? And like the church believes this, but, but the culture believes this. And, and like, it's just like why, would you, why would you still want that when you're considered a bigot or when you're considered hate the world? And you consider, like, why, why would you still want the Jesus thing if that's what he teaches? Or, or think of, like I said earlier, oppressive totalitarian governments such as North Korea. When you have this oppressive nature pushed upon the church, why does this church still exist? Let me read you a story. This is not a story, actually. It's a, a news article from May. It's titled, North Korea Arrests Five Christians During Underground Church Service. Just as they had every Sunday at 5 a.m., the five Christians gathered at a farmhouse for prayer and Bible study. But this time, the police were waiting for them. Tipped off by an informant, authorities arrested the believers on charges of believing in God, a crime in a country where all, a, all religion is illegal. There are two, actually two churches, two Christian churches in Pyongyang, um, and uh, it was kind of set up in 20, 30 years ago to show the religious uh, freedom allowed in the country, but those are, it's just pr- religious propaganda uh, for the state. Um, but in all, for all intents and purposes, re- uh, any other religion besides worshiping the leaders and his dad and grandpa uh, is illegal. And uh, sources told Radio Free Asia's Korean service, that's the who put this article out, Radio Free Asia, that the Christians arrested on April 30th are relatives who meet weekly at the farmhouse in Tongham Village outside Sunchun City in South Pyongyan, uh, prov- the South Pyongyan province uh, in central North Korea. So this is north, a city north of Pyongyang. 
At the site of the worship service, the police retrieved dozens of Bible booklets and arrested all in attendance. A resident of the Providence told RFA on condition of anonymity for security reasons. She said an informant tipped off the police about the secret Sunday morning gathering. News of the raid spread quickly uh, throughout the city, Sunchun. Uh, another resident who witnessed the arrest told RFA. They were praying and reading the Bible together. They got together with their relatives and prayed like, oh, Jesus, Lord Jesus, stuff like that. Uh, and they got arrested. If the pass is any indication, the believers will be sent to, to labor camps to serve time. The RFA was not able to confirm their status after the raid. And this is not the first time authorities had rounded up Christians in this city. Underground churches in the village were raided also in 2005, 1997. And the believers were sent to do hard labor in concentration camps. North Korea is known to ex execute, torture, and physically abuse individuals for their religious activities, according to the U.S. State Department's 2022 International Religious Freedom Report. Now, if that's the experience of these Christians there, you're like, in what sense, how is the church still existent? Like, how... How are there still Christians who like, like, yeah, I want that. I want the Jesus thing. What does the text say? God preserves the church. God preserves the church. And so in spite of all the sinfulness, both internal and external pressures upon the church, why is the church still here? Because God preserves us. That's why. God preserves us. He protects us from the fullest extent of the devil's wishes and desires. See, the devil, he desires to destroy the church, but he can't do the fullest extent of what he desires to do because why? God preserves the church. But the second way that we are preserved actually is the third thing, the passion of the church. Look at verse 17 with me. So the dragon was furious with the woman. And he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. That's you and me. Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. That's who the offspring of the woman is. It's those who hold to the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Now, this is the passion of the church. See, this is continuing a story that began in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, in this, in that text, it says there's the, this, the, the Satan, uh, Satan attacked the woman and de deceived her, and God is coming, and after she took the, the apple and she gave it to her husband to eat, or the fruit, and gave it to her husband to eat, and they both ate it, and they saw that they were, they were naked, and, and uh, that whole scene, well, God comes and He pronounces judgment on them. And He comes to the serpent and he says, you and her are going to have animosity towards each other. And her, you and her offspring are going to battle against one another. And you are going to uh, bruise his heel and he's going to crush your head. And that's a war that has taken place. And ultimately, it was won, this decisive victory through the ultimate son, the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ. But it's continued on by you and me, as we saw last week, the conquerors, Right? 
And so how else is the church preserved? It's also preserved, yes, by God, but also how God empowers us to display passion for Christ. That's what happens in this text. Look, it says this, he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. See, you and I are not left solely to play defense. We're not solely left just like in the corner hoping that God helps us out just the whole time. But no, no, no. God preserves us, but then he also gives us an offense as well to where we stand up as conquerors against the devil and we wage war with him. You see, when uh, this is a couple, I guess it was how long ago, when Russia invaded Ukraine. It was very apparent at the, at the time, if you think back at that time, it was the very like David versus Goliath kind of a moment, right? You had this great army that we thought was a great army with Russia coming to invade Ukraine. And what does President Zelensky do? Remember, he's, he stands and, and the U.S. offered him escape to get out of the country. And he says, I don't need a ride, I need ammo. And when you and I hear that, in the moment, okay, in the moment when we heard that everyone, like, puffs their chests up, and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, like, like you just, to see someone say, in the, in the face of great odds against them, to puff up their chest and say, you know what, it doesn't look good for us, we're going to war anyway. Like, it just fills you with just, like, amped energy, Right? And, uh, and the same thing is true here. What happens? The dragon comes to wage war against the offspring, and what does God do? He empowers the church to wage war in return. You see, that's what we talked about. The whole book, what does he call us to be? Conquerors. Conquerors. That's what he said back in verse 11, right? If you look back in verse 11, what did they do? They conquered him, who? The devil. By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, they waged war, offensive war against the dragon by clinging to the blood of the lamb on the cross and clinging to their testimony that Jesus' death on the cross won victory over the devil. And so here's the thing, is with the passion of the church, you and I are not victims. We're not left to be just attacked over and over again by the devil. We can play offense against him. You and I can bow up and be like, listen, you've lost. I don't have to listen to your accusations anymore. I don't have to follow into moral decay where like, you desire me to go. I don't have to believe your lies that you're leading me toward. I can trust Christ that he won and that I can follow victory in him. You see, here's the thing. What does Romans 8 tell us? See, the dragon wants to separate you from the love of God. He wants to remove you from God and lead you to be part of the destruction of the church. Romans 8, what does it tell us? What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long and we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But Paul says this, no. 
In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, not only do we stand up against the pursuit of the devil because we're preserved by God, but we also do it because of the passion of the church for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And in that, we stand as more than conquerors because nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so in what sense, here's this question, those Christians in North Korea and many, I've got other stories, I'm not going to get to them today. But in what sense is this preservation of these Christians in North Korea? How is that conquering if they are arrested and sent to camps? Well, what is, if we, as we saw, it's in Romans, we're going to get to it actually in Revelation chapter 13. You see, the destruction of the people of God is not the end of the people of God. The death of the people of God is not the end of the church. Why? Because we serve the one who defeated death. And the moment that the devil thinks that he has destroyed you by killing, it's actually the moment of great victory for the Christian. Because in that, they see ultimate victory because they are with the one who defeated death and know that they're going to be resurrected along with him. You see, the devil has no, no, no attack anymore that, that can win because Jesus won. Jesus defeated victory. And in that sense, we are more than conquerors because there's nothing, including death, that can remove us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, last thing is this. For you and me here, we hear stories of that, like our brothers and sisters in North Korea who face that kind of persecution. And you might think, would I do that? Would I be like them? Would I conquer in that moment like they will or like they did? Because I want you to hear the second half of that story. Bibles and other religious materials are typically smuggled into the country over the Chinese border, and they're distributed through a secret network of churches. And despite pressure from authorities, five, the five captured Christians have refused to renounce their religion. A staff member of the judicial agency told us that the believers refused to tell where they got their Bibles, and they said, all for Jesus, even in death. And the question is, is could you ever respond like that? Is your faith in Christ that deep to where you trust Him even in the face of that? And for us here, like, again, given our history, given our location, you might think, like, I don't know. I don't know the answer. And here's what I want to tell you. Don't be so quick to downplay the power of God in you. Don't be so quick to downplay the power that is at work in you, leading you to become like Christ. Listen to this. This is the last thing we'll be done. First Timothy. I mean, Second Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 7, or 6 through 8. Therefore, I want to remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power 
and of love and of sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Don't be so quick to downplay the level of power you have in you through God who exists in you. And so let's pray.